Well, in light of the current events that have been happening here in our city and all around our nation, I thought it made sense for us just to spend a moment here in prayer before we begin our time of studying the Word. So I know this might be awkward because I know a lot of you are watching this with your family in different places, family rooms, living rooms, maybe even kitchens and places around. But if it's possible, I want to ask you to just to join hands together. Let's unite in that way, and then let's pray together and ask God to, uh, to work in our lives and in this church as well as in our community. So would you do that? Let's join hands together and let's pray. Lord, we come to you recognizing that hearts are broken. Our hearts break for people who we know, people who we love, and even for people who we don't know, but we know they're in pain right now and they're grieving. We know that we live in a world that is broken because of sin. God, we have made a mess of your perfect creation. We've been self-centered at times, prideful, and we have fought with one another when we should have fought for one another. God, forgive us for not seeing the best in each other. Forgive us for having been so focused on ourselves that we've forgotten to focus on you. Help us, God, to remember that everyone, every single one of us is created in your image. You made each of us exactly the way we are. So help us to realize that when we reject anyone you have created, we are rejecting you. Lord, we don't want to do that. Lord, I pray for us as a church that if there be any wicked way in us that we would lay it down before you today. Lord, help us to love one another as you have loved us. I pray as Jesus prayed in John 17 that all believers would be one. Lord, help us to build that bridge. Help us to do that together. Lord, we ask your blessing as you lead us through your word today. May we hear you. And may you change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are currently in a series called What I Learned in the Crisis. And I promise you, we had no idea that we would be in a crisis like we are today. In this series, we have been exploring the question, what did we learn, but Also, what did some of our Bible heroes learn when they were in a crisis? The first week, Brennan Johnson, our new student ministry leader, uh, talked about the life of David and how important a friend like Jonathan was during David's crisis. Last week, we studied what Abraham learned in he and Sarah's crisis with infertility. And next week, we're going to examine an amazing man of God, Nehemiah, and what he learned during his 
national crisis. But today, we're going to look at a man who arguably had it all one day and lost it all the next day. Of course, I'm talking about Job. You know, if God is all-powerful, then why would he allow certain things to happen? Is he angry with us? Is he angry with me? Is he mad at you? I mean, these are questions that often get asked in the middle of a crisis when God is silent. The reality is that most of us will believe that God has alienated us at some point in our lives. At some point, you will experience something that doesn't make sense, and you will think that God has left you. But that isn't true. We aren't always going to know what God is doing or how he is doing it, or why he's doing it the way he's doing it. We will not always know how our struggles, or our suffering, or our loss seem to fit into his plan that he has for us. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Many will come to the point where they think God has lost control of this world, or maybe he's just lost interest in it. This past week, we've watched as peaceful protests have sparked sparked by the killing of George Floyd turned into riots in several cities across our nation. People looted and burned and defaced businesses and destroyed public and private property. Many people looked at the death of this black man and wondered, why didn't God intervene? The same people are looking at the looting of our cities and they're wondering, why doesn't God stop that either? We call out to him, but at times all we get is silence. Charles was a man with a strong faith and a deep walk with God who learned that his wife was involved with another man. The first time I met Charles, he came forward at the end of a worship service and he was obviously in deep despair. He was desperate to get his wife back and to save his marriage. And what you need to know about my friend Charles was that He was that kind of guy who would spend time daily in the Bible and in prayer talking with God. He loved to worship the Lord and to serve him and was often one of the very first to step up to minister to others who were in need. He'd even served on the mission field as a medical missionary sharing the gospel while healing the hurts and wounds and brokenness of people all around the world. And now, during his greatest crisis, God doesn't seem to be working Have you ever wondered where God is when your world has fallen apart? Have you ever prayed, why me, God? Why is this happening to me? Have you ever thought that God was opposing you personally, but you had no idea why? The reality is that all of us have probably felt that at one time or another, and if you haven't, there's probably a chapter or season in the future of your life where you may experience that. 
Even some of our heroes in the Bible have felt that way. What is surprising is there is a time in Scripture where God actually answered, why me? And God actually, he eventually answered. It's found in the book of Job. Today we will discover some of the truths in Job's story. I think very remarkable things that every person who has ever found themselves in the middle of a crisis will benefit from. Job is a remarkable individual. The very first verse tells us this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. His book starts off with everything is just going remarkably, incredibly well in his life. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. Job had a significant fortune, lots of land, enormous flocks and herds, and a large, wonderful family. Along with all of that, Job had this impeccable reputation. Verse 3 says, he was the greatest man among all the people of the east. And then God has a dialogue with Satan, and the book of Job gives us the transcript of their conversations. We read this starting in Job chapter 1, verse 8 and following. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Life was pretty good for Job until the day came when he literally lost everything. His children, his wealth, his servants, his friends, even his reputation. This was a terrible day. But what's remarkable about it is it didn't destroy Job. Listen to what he said in verse 20 and following. At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Both of these are signs of humility. And then it says, then he fell to the ground in worship. Another sign of his humility before God. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Satan had orchestrated all of this devastation in Job's life, thinking that he would curse God if he lost his family and all of his wealth. But Satan underestimated Job's faith. So, after a period of time, Satan gets another audience with God, and God starts the conversation off the very same way. We read in 
chapter 2, verses 3 and following. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. This is absolutely horrible what Job experiences. It's believed that he is covered with sores that are similar to or maybe exactly like boils. These are painful sores. And they have this this attribute that they itch. Remarkable. Then Job took a piece of pottery, the text says, a piece of broken pottery, and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. We assume he's sitting in the city dump, scraping his sores, trying to get relief. And then verse 9 says, his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. This is the first time we hear from Job's wife, and her statement gives us this picture of the difficulty of Job's trial. She, like Job, had suffered a tremendous loss also. You see, in ancient times, a wife got her identity in the community and her financial security from her husband. So when Job lost everything, she lost everything. And you get the feeling that she blames Job for it, too, when she says, are you still maintaining your integrity? She's implying, knock it off, Job. Nobody's buying it. What, with all of these horrible events that have happened to you, obviously you've committed some sin. So stop acting like you're all blameless and everything. And then she repeats Satan's idea when she says, curse God and die. It's not surprising that Satan would take his entire family, but possibly for this reason, he spared Job's wife. Job is still blameless and upright, but no one believes that anymore. You see, during the time of Job, many people believed that no one at that time had any knowledge of Satan's existence They believed that if something bad happened to someone, like what happened to Job, that it was directly related to a sin or a group of sins that that individual had committed. So the focus becomes, God did this to me. A great danger for people who've experienced tragedy is that Satan will use their pain to make them think they are unimportant to God. When a person begins to feel that they don't matter to God, discouragement and disengagement can't be far behind. For those who are in a low place right now, those of you who are struggling in the midst of a crisis, let me reassure you that God is still there and you can trust him. 
And the reason I say that is we take great confidence and we take great comfort from the word of God. God is not sitting at his desk in heaven, wringing his hands, wondering how he's going to solve your problem or, or bail you out of the struggle that you're in. Remember, he's the one who created the universe. He can handle these challenges that you face, and he loves you deeply. So with that in mind, God says in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. Don't worry. Trust me. You know what I'm capable of. Be still and know that I am God. Job responds to his wife in verse 10. He's, he replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And then verse 10 says, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Job had an incredible faith in God. At the end of chapter 2, we're introduced to three of Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophan. And we read in verse 13, it says, Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Those are great friends. They just were there. But then something happens. Over the course of the next ch several chapters in the book, a debate begins. His friends thought if all of this terrible stuff had happened to Job, then surely he had sinned. And so in the midst of his physical pain and this great personal loss that he had just endured, his friends are questioning his integrity. And we know Job's character is so important to him. He defends it all through the book of Job. Eventually, Job has exhausted his friends' debates, and just as they wind down, a fourth friend, Elihu, shows up. And so the debate continues. The debate continues. It's interesting that not even the threat of death is able to derail Job from his faith in God. We read in Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Job was tough. He could take a punch. He could take everything the crisis dished out to him. But eventually, Job reached a point of deep anguish he has this remarkable stamina. He dealt with all of this death of his family, physical pain and illness, all these catastrophic disasters that took everything that he owned. But he finally reaches his breaking point. It's in Job, the 23rd chapter, verse 2 and following. It says, even today, my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. 
Would he vigorously oppose me? No, he would not press charges against me. There, there the upright can establish their innocence before him. And there I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. Job had finally reached this point of despair. He's growing dejected because for so long he sees no light at the end of the tunnel which he's been in now for quite a while. Oddly enough, the problem, he says, is that he can't find God. Was Job's struggle to connect with God in the middle of a crisis unique to him? That he couldn't find God to connect with him? Was this something that was special only to Job? (laughs) This happens to most all of us. David wrote, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? David understood what Job was going through because he went through it too. Yet most believers will face physical or emotional or spiritual challenges that are designed to test their faith in the furnace of a crisis. And the reason for this is because faith is a huge deal to God. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 6, Hebrews 11, 6. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. That's how important your faith is. What this boils down to is believing when the proof is not provided and our questions aren't answered and we don't hear God at all. God will still lead us through times of testing to grow our faith and our dependence on him. You know, for centuries, people have been tormented by that one question. If God is, all, is so good and all-powerful, why does he allow his creatures to suffer pain? In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis tries to answer that question. He writes, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think we hear God better. I think we're more attentive to what he has to say when we're in the middle of a struggle. I know that a spiritual answer doesn't reduce a person's pain or the struggles that they're facing when we feel like we're walking through a crisis alone. And I'll admit that I usually don't handle these challenges with the finesse that Job and David did. It's easy to start thinking in the middle of it all to, that, to doubt that God was even there. That's easy to do. This, this can easily lead to being disillusioned It can cause us to be frustrated when we realize that God spoke the universe into existence and he has the power to fix these things that I'm facing. He could save me, he could rescue me, he could heal me. But for some reason, he isn't doing that right now. And when you find yourself in that moment, don't be surprised if Satan leans in and whispers in your ear that God's not with you. In fact, you're all by yourself. You're all alone. 
Our second house that Ann and I owned had a trumpet vine on the west side of the house. Now, it had nice blooms on it, but I'm going to level with you. This thing was a nuisance. We tried to kill it numerous times. It took probably five or six attempts before we were successful. What it did was it, it attached to the side of our house. It would grow really fast, and it would grow into the bricks and the mortar, and it would work its way into the gutters and the soffits, causing all kinds of destruction along the way. So eventually we decided to get rid of it. We cut it down at the roots. And then we had tried pulling it off the side of the house. And we weren't able to get it all off the house every time. It was frustrating. Because it was attached to the house. But over time, the parts that we couldn't pull off eventually would dry up and eventually fall off. I think... Christians who lose God during a crisis, they turn on him. They say, hey, you're not going to help me out, then I'm done with you. Or like that trumpet vine that gets cut off at the roots. A believer will lose his spiritual strength and nourishment. Eventually, he'll start to wither in his faith, his belief, and usually he drops out of church, he stops praying, he quit reading the Bible a long time ago. There's no peace in his life, and sometimes people like that become really bitter. If you're a person who has found yourself separated from God because of the confusion that you felt in the middle of your crisis, I know that there is pain. I know that you're hurting. Trying to explain why the tragedy happened. You can't. Why does a flash flood happen when it does? Why does a, a tornado hit where it hits or, or a fire? Or why does a pandemic happen? Or why is a man killed in the street by someone who swore an oath to protect him? Why do those things happen? My friend Charles wanted so badly to save his marriage, but sadly his wife didn't share the same desire and so they di divorced. For all who are brokenhearted because of the crisis that you went through or that you find yourself in right now. For those who are desperate for a word of encouragement, let me remind you, you can always trust God even when he's silent. Just because you can't hear him or he seems distant does not mean he's not there. Because he is. That's what Job found out. God was silent for 37 chapters. And then, chapter 38. The heading in my Bible simply says this. The Lord speaks. And man, did he have Job's undivided attention. Verses 1 and 2 says, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. It was a storm that he spoke from. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? God finally speaks, and we see the first truth that Job can learn from this entire crisis, and that is that when you speak, 
make sure you have the facts. You see, Job has been saying a lot of things over the last three dozen chapters. And during the debate with his friends, he's going on and on, but he's not got all the information. Let me give you an example. In Job 27, verse 2, it says, As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty, who has made my life bitter. Job blamed God for his crisis. Everybody thought it was only God. They had no knowledge of Satan. He had no knowledge of the evil one. He had no knowledge that it was Satan who was the one who was doing all of this. The one who caused all of this heartache and all of this pain. We're accountable, though, for the things that we say. The things that we do in the middle of a crisis. We're accountable for the things we say. The words you choose. Choose them carefully especially when you're emotionally charged, especially when you're speaking out of pain. God then says in chapter 38, verse 3, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Truth number two, we are responsible for our words and actions. God said, brace yourself like a man. Because Job would have to respond for the careless things he had said. He better have his base underneath him. He better be prepared in God speaking out of the storm. If you're like me, you've probably said things out of your pain or in the heat of the moment that later you would regret. Over the next several chapters, God held Job accountable. And he educated him on the things he had no knowledge of. He gave him perspective that he, maybe he knew at one time, but he had forgotten, or maybe he never knew, but he gave him clear perspective on who God was. Over the next several chapters, God held, held him accountable. And then Job, with great humility, responds to God and reveals several truths that he learned during this crisis. Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Truth number three. God is always in control. Even when God is silent, Job learned that God was still in complete control. Job confesses that God can do all things. In his plans, they will not be stopped Nobody can stop his plans. No one can thwart what God decides to do. Verse 3 in chapter 42, you asked, Job says, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. The next thing Job learned was truth number four. Own your mistakes when you're wrong. This is one that is very simple. If you said it or you did it and it was wrong, then own it. God will be honored and others will have respect for you. And I think you'll even have some personal respect for yourself. Verse four, Job says, you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. Truth number five, listen to God more. Oh, I know you listen to him, 
But what if you made the promise to yourself you were going to listen to him more? Job had done a lot of talking, and now God told him, listen to me, Job. And Job does. He pays attention. Take time to listen to God by reading his word. You see, the Bible is a love letter from God to all of humanity. So take some time and read it. Listen to what God has to say. Verses five and six. My ears, Job said, had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Truth number six. Repent when you are wrong. Repent is a simple word that means to turn around or to change direction. The idea here is that when you're wrong, you're going in the wrong direction. It's wrong. God's, that's not the direction God would have you to go. So once you, we own our mistake or our sin, then change the direction and move in the God-honoring, God-prescribed direction. It's clear. It's clear that Job has learned a lot during this crisis. There's probably far more than what we've been able to scratch the surface of in this talk. But then God does something remarkable. He blesses Job. You could make the case that Job has been to the very bottom of what life's existence could be. He knew pain on so many levels. And now God is going to bless him. Verse 12 says, The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also, and he also had seven sons and three daughters. Verses 16 and 17, After this, Job lived 140 years. Listen, he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation Man, you can imagine that family reunion that was. And so Job died, verse 17 says, an old man and full of years. I'm not sure what full of years means, but I got a feeling that his life was rich and full and meaningful. Even though Job was blameless and upright, one thing we recognize in this text is that he wasn't perfect The truth is, none of us are. We all have things to learn, and we will learn some of those things during the crisis that we go through. And some of you, it's what you're going through right now. But just maybe, just maybe we can learn from the truth that Job learned during his crisis, and just maybe we can save ourselves some unnecessary pain and suffering during our crisis. I want to thank you for joining us for worship today. It's always a privilege. We don't take it for granted. We're really grateful for your partnering with us. We miss you like you cannot believe. We really look forward to being with you soon. And if you haven't heard, we announced just this past week that we are going to be reopening on June the 28th, one service at 1045 Check out our website and our social media platforms for all details. And before you go, I want to encourage you, take some time today, tomorrow, someday in the the near future 
to show somebody God's love. I think our city could use some of that right now. We're God's hands and feet, so let's be the conduit that his love flows through. You do that, and I think God will be blessed, and I think it will help our city. We love you. We miss you. We're so looking forward to the 28th when we can be together again. In the meantime, God bless you. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in with us today. Be sure you're staying connected by following NCC Lex on all social media platforms. Also, if you'd like more information on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, drop us a message on social or just shoot an email over to notes to at nccLex.org. You guys have a blessed week and we'll see you soon.